Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. I'm sure you will remember that when Bill Clinton ran for president in 1992, James Carville's prescient slogan, It's the Economy, Stupid, was a fundamental foundation of that campaign. It was effective because it captured in perhaps a more innocent time the essence of the economy that personally impacted every single American. Today, almost 30 years and a political chasm later, it seems that there are many economies. The Wall Street economy, the economy of the 1%, the middle class, those struggling to make ends meet, and those totally left behind. The economy is no longer a catchword that's a big tent for all. Just look at the current situation as 35 million Americans are out of work. Lines at food banks stretch for miles, and yet the stock market is hitting new highs. Arguably today, the current pandemic and its resultant economic crisis is an accelerant that further accentuates our division. So as we look out amidst staggering unemployment and a great economic divide, is there a common goal that the economy should represent and strive for? My guest, Gene Sperling, thinks that there is. Gene Sperling was director of the National Economic Council under both President Obama and President Clinton. He is the author of several previous books, including The Pro-Growth Progressive and What Works in Girls' Education. He founded the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution and has been a senior economic advisor on multiple presidential campaigns. His latest work is entitled Economic Dignity, and it is my pleasure to welcome Gene Sperling here to the program. Gene, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's great to have you here. I want to talk about this idea first, that when we look at the economy today, when we talk about the economy, that it means different things to different people. We hear coming out of Washington sometimes and out of the White House sometimes that it's only about the stock market. But of course, it's very different for people out there in the rest of the country. Talk a little bit about that and this kind of confusion as to what we mean by the economy today. No, I, I think you, you hit it on the, on the, on the, the nail. The, we tend to allow economics to be thought of as if the end goal was some economic metric. You know, you're, you're, the end goal of everything you're doing is a, is a GDP goal or a productivity goal or how the stock market is moving. And I think that's both wrong for policymakers and it alienates a lot of people from feeling that they can be part of the economic discussion. I wanted to write a, a different kind of economic books uh, that, was, that, that would talk about what is actually should be your end goal. The economic end goal of the democracy sh- shouldn't be anything other than how it uplifts the lives of, of, of people. And I wanted to ask and define what should that end goal be? What is it that matters? What would someone on their deathbed say mattered most in their economic life? And so I defined as this North Star the, the frame economic dignity. But I also wanted to say what exactly that meant and then talk about how you would apply that to different policy measures. And so I came up with a, a three-part definition. One, that it's the capacity, economic capacity, to truly care for your family, to not just uh, put food on the table, but be at the table, be at the bedtime story, be at the bedside of a, of a loved one in their final days. In other words, economic caring for family has to mean your capacity to enjoy those moments of life uh, that are most essential for all of us uh, in, in caring for the people we love. The two that that 
that we also all desire to pursue a sense of purpose and potential and that our ideal in our country is that everyone has not only a first chance, but that we have second chances. We idealize the notion of second chances and yet we're, we're particularly miserable at it as a country. There's no country where losing a job leads to more hardship. There's probably few countries where going to prison or being involved in criminal justice gives you less second chances. We do uh, uh, enormously little for people who uh, maybe have deal with the disability, but would still like to find a way to contribute to, to, to contribute to their economy. So that was the second leg. But I realized that all of that could come tumbling down if you didn't have the third pillar of economic dignity, which is protections to ensure you can work with respect and not be subject to domination or humiliation. So if the price of putting food on the table, if the price of pursuing your potential is that you have to deal with an unsafe workplace, sexual harassment or sexual violence, abuse, that becomes the antithesis of economic dignity. So you have to have that third pillar as well. And we see that every day right now um, uh, where we, we, we cheer and honor many of our essential workers, and yet uh, uh, they fail almost on our treatment of them fails in many of these regards. They can't actually put food on the table. They don't have the paid sick leave to care for their family. And some of them are being subject to abusive conditions and or facing retaliation when they speak out. So uh, this is not meant to be an abstract book. Uh, the no, this is defining our North Star, our economic goal is economic dignity, and then asking what we need to do to the country to live, to live up to this for everyone who does their part, who contributes, who work. One of the things that, that's inherent, it seems, in talking about economics, what, what somebody once referred to as the dismal science, is that, that there are some metrics by which to judge all of this. Can we take something like dignity and the things that you're talking about, Gene, and put that into some kind of metric by which we can judge our success or failure? So I think it's true that Obviously, you want to have measurement. Obviously, you don't want people to just be able to define anything as dignity uh, and say, you know, I know it when I see it. Um, but I do feel that it is important to start with uh, this kind of qualitative aspiration. I think it helps you keep your eye on the ball. And what I find happens is that you know, somebody starts thinking, boy, 3% of GDP, that's measurable. So therefore, that ought to be our, our goal. And, you know, it does start to remind of the, of the very bad joke about the inebriated uh, uh, person who's looking for their car keys under the, the, the streetlight. And somebody goes to help them and says, is this where you, you think your keys are? And they say, no, but it's the only place the light is shining. If we look only for that, that can be precisely measured, we can miss an enormous amount of the economic pain that is actually quite obvious once we, we have a goal like economic dignity. So, for example, do, do, do you need to show with precision the harm that tens of millions of women might feel if they're being sexually harassed or sexually violated at work? No, we know that is a source of domination and humiliation that 
shouldn't exist, and you don't need to have an economic metric. We know that that defies working with respect or without domination or humiliation. Or if we look just at, you know, the even like a wage number, how's a person, how's net wages going for people, that might miss the fact that we as a country often allow job loss or community factory closing to lead to a downward cycle that eats at a person's soul. It takes away their ability to care for their family. Uh, It takes away their capacity to find another job, to pursue potential. Uh, That might get lost in measurement. But if our standard is everybody should be able to pursue potential, then I do think it doesn't substitute for metrics, but it makes you remember your ultimate end goal is to ensure that everybody who does their part lives with a degree of economic dignity. And then you can start to ask which metrics help us reach that end goal. But you don't confuse that GDP is your end goal because you can have high GDP in a country like Saudi Arabia that gives all the money to the royal family. And you wouldn't say, well, that meets our end goal because we actually don't just care about a metric in the abstract. We care about whether it is leading to an economy that everybody can work, pursue their potential, work with respect, and be able to care for their family with a degree of dignity uh, uh, that, is, that is universal uh, for people in wanting to uh, uh, make sure their children are okay, make sure they have some opportunity, make sure that they don't take devastating falls that – force them to lose their house or their, their, their sense of well-being. Can we find historical precedent for this, in, starting first in the U.S., where that has been the focus and we've seen positive results from it? Well, in my book, I talk about the two Roosevelt era, uh, and I talk about Teddy Roosevelt because it's very powerful. Here he's a Republican, uh, pro-business, pro-market, anti-regulation Republican, and what changes him? It's not some economic philosophy. It's as he's a state assemblyman, he goes and tours the tenements in New York City where they're making cigars, and he sees a level of degradation that he's, he can't imagine. You know, working men humiliated in front of their children who are also working by their side. And he says, this is just wrong. And he says, now, and, and, and so he, that starts to lead to the era where we start saying, we're going to make sure that work does protect against a degree of domination and humiliation. And so you see that period of anti-child labor law, minimum wage, uh, you know, some of the basic labor protections uh, that we now take for granted. But I think when you look at what drove them, it was a sense that there was a degree of domination that, that led people to have a kind of inhuman loss of dignity that those people felt was inconsistent with the broader ideals and the broader protections people had against the state. And then I think the second Roosevelt FDR is people are looking and they are seeing people who've worked their whole lives dying in the street in their older age. And FDR's response is in the New Deal is not just a macroeconomic response. If you go through his language, he talks about the idea of people who've contributed their whole life dying in the street in their elderly age. And he refers to the loss of dignity that that leads to, that that's not a dignified economy. And so uh, 
you then see this kind of affirmative positive dignity where we realize that it's not just protecting against the abusive employer, but there's affirmative things that we need to do to ensure that people have the wages, the health security, the retirement security, so that they can work with dignity, raise their family with dignity, and retire with dignity. How does this relate to people that are on the upper end of the economy who certainly don't need a helping hand, don't need to address some of these issues, but are nonetheless an important part of the economy? Well, I think what you want to do is, you, you, you know, an economic dignity framework does not, is, it can be cons- very consistent uh, and, and should be consistent with a view of capitalism. And, you know, what I talk about is that, that you can have in a capitalist society a country where, yes, some people will be celebrities and, uh, uh, or start their own successful business, and, and they'll have wealth. They'll have a certain degree of wealth and beautiful house and you know, beautiful vacations. But you should still structure that economy that even if for those who are doing well, it is built on a foundation where there's a basic level for everyone uh, and that is not radical and it's not impossible. And it goes even, I mean, obviously it starts with a living wage. Uh, obviously it starts with universal health care. But think about the following. At a typical firm uh, in the United States, executives often have paid bereavement leave. If they were to suffer the worst of tragedies, the loss of somebody in their immediate family, an executive could get paid time off. But lower-level workers or contractors wouldn't. Now, what does that say? What kind of country are we when if you lost a spouse or something, just, you know, one of the worst events in your life, that your economic station in the country would determine whether you could take time off with your family to grieve? One in eight women go back to work, are economically forced to go back to work within one week of their childbirth. So what I'm saying is we can, you can have a country that, uh, that celebrates capitalism, that, that understands that some people will do better, but you structure markets and you structure your economic compact. So that is not at the expense or the exploitation of people, but that it is built on a foundation that everyone who contributes can Again, not just care for their family, but be there for life's most special moments, pursue their sense of potential, and work with respect, not domination. How much of this has to be addressed through public policy, specific policies, and how much of it is really a political equation that we need a different mindset in the body politic? Well, you know, I think these are, they're obviously related. I mean, the, the, the thing I've spoken about a lot during the COVID crisis is that we, in, in some sense, have had that, I think of it as the Martin Luther King moment. And what I refer to is in 1968 at the Memphis sanitation worker strike, uh, he makes his famous speech just weeks before his assassination, where he says, all labor has dignity. And right before that, is the line is we as a nation will someday come to realize that the sanitation worker is as essential as the physician to our well-being and we are 
powerfully having that moment now. People are very aware that perhaps the, the assisted nurse, the home health aide, the uh, uh, delivery worker, the farm worker, that they are propping up our lives. They're saving our lives and we're calling them essential and people are cheering for them. And that sense of recognition of the value of each of us is more powerful today perhaps than ever. But Martin Luther King also said in that same speech, what good is it to sit at an integrated lunch counter uh, if you can't afford to buy your family a meal? And I think many of the people getting applause as they go into work at a hospital are going to start to ask, how meaningful is the applause and being called a hero if I still don't have a living wage, if I'm caring for other people but can't have a single day of paid sick leave myself? And so I think one has to hope that this moment of realizing the value, the dignity, how essential all work is, doesn't translate into more support across the political spectrum, uh, you know, for just a basic compact of economic dignity, a new New Deal for workers, where you just say, if you work hard to do, if you contribute, then you should be able to raise your family with a modicum of dignity and respect. Uh, and I, I just do, I believe that's rich in the American uh, values. I think we just have to call on it enough so that our policymakers uh, feel compelled to to take the 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 acts to uh, to to make to structure our economy so that all work has to be treated that way. Gene Sperling, his new book is Economic Dignity. Gene, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, I thank you so much for caring about the uh, issues in this book and being willing to, to have me on. Thank you so much. Thank you.